0: Say your name and where you're from.
1: Hi, I'm Chloe, and I'm from Edmonton. I'm Hope, from Edmonton. Hi, I'm Michelle, I'm from Surrey.
2: Carson, Victoria, BC. Eric, Victoria, BC. These are my
0: people. Want to say your name and where you're from?
1: I'm Hannah, and I'm from Mission.
0: My name's Caitlin and I live in Maple Ridge. Hey, friends, this is Jaden.
3: And I'm Mariah.
0: Mariah, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, David. It is so good to have your voice here. Our team is familiar with you. We get to work with you all the time. But why don't you introduce yourself to the people listening who might not know you?
3: Yeah, well, I'm an events coordinator with CCLN. Uh, so that means I've been able to help plan and run a few of the gatherings and events that we've had this past year, which has been super fun.
0: And that includes our Canadian Youth Pastor Summit. Mm-hmm. Our next two episodes are anchored in this event. It was such a meaningful event. And Mariah, it couldn't have happened without you. It would have been impossible. <laughs> Well, we could not have done it without you. We're so thankful for you. Why don't you give us a snapshot into this event and what we'll be talking through for the next couple of episodes.
3: Yeah, so from October 3rd to 5th, we had the privilege of welcoming just over hundred youth pastors from across the country to sunny Vancouver, BC. Yes, you heard that right, it was sunny.
0: It's a little rare. Yeah. yeah.
3: <laughs> so this is our very first Canadian Youth Pastors Summit. This group of pastors represented 84 unique churches. 43 Canadian cities, and roughly 8,000 students, all coming together for the sake of the next generation.
0: It was a really meaningful time, and the days together felt really important. We hoped a number of things would happen in our time planning it and when we were in the room with youth pastors. We wanted them to be equipped for thoughtful, deep youth ministry in this time, and for that to actually translate to the families in their churches right when they got home. We wanted these youth pastors to feel seen and encouraged in their work to connect and collaborate with one another, really for no youth pastor to feel alone in their work.
3: And maybe most importantly, we wanted as many youth pastors as possible to leave knowing they had connected with Jesus and that his presence was going back with them to their churches. But before we made our way to the downtown core of Vancouver, where we would spend the majority of our time together, we started day one, the Monday night in the beautiful Museum of Vancouver. We ate good food, made introductions, and started chatting about youth ministry. We ended the time with Jason Ballard sharing a word to set the tone for the next couple of days.
0: This is a clip from that message.
4: My dad, his name's Bill Ballard. And um, when I was my kid's age, he was a youth pastor. And I'm really proud about that. My dad was a freaking youth pastor, he loved teenagers. Everywhere I go, I meet adults who say, Your dad was my youth pastor. He never had a huge youth group. He had a normal youth group. But I meet adults with kids who are now graduated from high school. And they're like, are you Bill Ballard's son? So I'm Bill Ballard's son. So He was my youth pastor. I love that. I love that. Because youth pastors make an eternal difference. Like, it's something to be proud of what we get to do. And I love chatting with my dad about youth ministry um, because it was rowdy back then. Like, I don't think they used seatbelts or anything. So, like, <laughs> liabilities. like, come again? And, um... It's a different time. I was, um, a couple of months ago, I was visiting my friend in Langley. Jason is his name. I'm Jason. He's also a Jason. And uh, a lot of years ago, Jason was a youth group kid, went down a path of drugs and addiction, and then came to his senses and uh, went to a place called Wagner Hills, a recovery farm. Amazing program. We love it. And now he's the director. He runs it. He's a good friend of mine. So I go out there every now and then because I just find that when I'm amongst um, when they work when when I'm amongst people who are like in a program like that and they're worshiping, I just feel like it's it's like the best worship because no one there's pretending. They're all just like, I'm desperate for you, God. So I just find that I feel most like I loved worshiping with them. I just love it. So in this room is like 30 men and maybe 20 women who are all in like a year-long recovery program, many of them dealing with recovery from drugs or alcohol or other different things. And they invited me to come and share, and so it's was worshiping and shared a short message, I think, on perseverance. And, uh, and then afterwards, there was a bit of like a lineup of people I just wanted to connect. And I love connecting with them afterwards because I love hearing their stories. It's so, it reminds me of what God can do, right? What God can do in a life. And so I just Love, love hearing the story, but then maybe there's six or seven people queued up to chat. And there's one person I noticed from the beginning at the end of the line. Um, and I noticed him at the end of the line, and, uh, and he waited the whole time. It was probably like 25 minutes by the time he and I were actually chatting. And uh, he comes to the front of the line, and you know what he says? He says, are you Bill Ballard's son? I was like, yeah. He goes, um, He goes, I was in your dad's youth group. And so if you rewind like 30 years earlier, um, his sister became a Christian, then his other sister became a Christian, then the whole family got saved through the church my dad was a youth pastor at. So they're all involved. But for this individual, shortly after that, he found himself disconnected from the church, tons of hurt, tons of pain, so much pain. And then a life of addiction, 30 years estranged from the church, wandering And then during COVID hits rock bottom in his addiction, returns to the Lord, checks himself into Wagner. And so he's in this lineup and he's like, is your dad Bill Ballard? I said, yeah. He's like, your dad was my youth pastor. I said, that's amazing. He's like, starts telling me his story. And I just hug this guy. I'm just hugging him, like thanking God for God's faithfulness. And then I call my dad. On my way home, and my dad doesn't answer. But then I get a call back from my dad a few moments later. So my dad was in like an environment like this. I got a fundraiser or something, you know. So he stepped outside, so I could just hear the sound of the street on the other side of the phone. And my dad's like, "Hey Jay, what's up?" And I was like, "Dad, I met and I said his name." He's like, "No way." I said, "You're not going to believe it." He's following the Lord. He's doing well. He's free of addiction. And I just hear on the other side of the phone, like my dad go. And then just praising God because of God's faithfulness, you know, 30 years later, like some of you have watched students go out the door already, haven't you? Where are they now? You know, did it work? Like, I I, I love that kid so much. Like, I poured into him so much. I walked with her, I helped her, and she's still making these decisions. It's so painful, isn't it? Like when you see someone make a positive step one direction and then it just feels like it's like 10 steps back. I just want you to know, like we do not know the outcomes of these stories. And God is such a good heavenly father and every ounce of loving students and pointing them to Jesus is not wasted. Not one ounce is wasted in the hands of a very faithful and good God. What we're doing matters. I want to invite you up into it.
0: Now, one of the great joys of doing this summit was being able to partner with the youth worker community, an organization existing to equip, empower, and support youth workers in order to help the next generation know Jesus.
3: In September alone, the youth worker community had connected with between 800 to 1,000 youth workers in 20 different locations across the country. So if anyone knows about the climate of youth ministry in Canada and what these youth pastors are feeling, it's these guys.
0: So during the summit, I sat down with Sid Koop, the executive director of Youth Worker Community and a dear friend of our teams, to get him to share about the challenges they're seeing in youth ministry today and why he thinks a summit like this really matters. You're hearing a ton yeah. from these youth workers and yeah. youth pastors about the challenges on the ground. Yeah. Um, can you share a little bit about like what are some of the repeating themes that are emerging? Yeah.
5: First of all, by the way, like God is at work in the next generation. I just want to be really clear about that. That, like, um, I love uh, how Jason always says, Hey, the church is fine. God's got it. He's going to build the church. And it's true. And I'm so hopeful when I see God at work through um, so many of the next generations. So I love it. But it doesn't mean that the difficulties aren't real and complex. And they are. So, a couple things that have stood out. Uh, number one, the, the amount of anxiety and struggles with mental health amongst young people is through the roof in ways that, that we just haven't seen before. You know, certainly I haven't seen in my lifetime in terms of the work that I do. What I hear from mental health professionals, the percentages of kids that are struggling in these areas is higher than what they've seen before. So that's very, very real coming out of the last few years. So I think that anxiety, mental health, I think the basic fear of living in a really unstable global context right now. So it's both unstable personally within the home. We're seeing families shift and change. It's unstable in terms of their vision for the future. When I think about high school kids, And how these last three years have affected them and their plans for the future have legitimately been changed and shifted in real ways. That's difficult and that's hard. And then it's unstable like, you know, globally in terms of what we see happening. And the access to information that kids have now is ridiculous. You know, it says in Matthew that don't worry about tomorrow for today has enough worries of its own. And the reality is I think what it's saying is, hey, we're called to be responsible for the space we're in now, not the space of the whole world but it weighs heavy. So I think there's just basic fear that's very real. Um, I think that we're seeing the effects of kids having not been in um, proximal community, So like physically in space with other people because we're so wired for community. We need it so much. So I think there's lots of relational anxiety that's gone along with that. What does that kind of reintegration look like at camp? Kids were really struggling with what it meant to be together overnight in those camp spaces for a longer period of time. And parents struggled with it as well. So parents contributed to the fear in those spaces also. So I think there's a number of those things that have been at play. Jayden, I'm really fascinated by like uh, leadership development spaces. So with our staff at camp, we just discovered that many of them were probably two years behind in terms of practical leadership development because they haven't had to exercise those muscles for so long. Heck, it was the same for me. I found myself like way back in some ways because of the lack of the exercise of those things. So I think about missions trips. I think about community experiences and things that we've just missed out on. That shapes and forms, you know, who we are and what we're called to do. So all of those pressures, those experiences, those those realities are the real things that kids are dealing with, and youth pastors are fighting, and youth workers to come alongside and journey kids through.
0: Do you think it's harder today than it ever has been to be a youth pastor?
5: Uh, it, yes, with a qualifier. There's been seasons, I'm sure, when I think about um, environments that are like torn by war. So. Real quick, you know, we had friends of ours who are now friends, came from Ukraine, who are youth workers in the Ukraine, and they came and visited our camp. And um, we asked them, what could we pray about for you? And they said, could you pray that the bombs would stop dropping so we can run camp? Okay, I've never had that. That's not my prayer request at camp. Do you know what I mean? So in one sense, globally, there's things that I can't relate to. We've had it very good. But in our personal context, I would say, yes, Jaden, it's more complex than what I've seen it in my lifetime.
3: And this, of course, is more than just data and words on a sheet. We all know that. These are real youth pastors on the ground serving every day who are experiencing these unique challenges, like Eric, for example.
6: I got hired on
2: as an intern, youth intern in my, in my church, uh, with the intention of interning under our youth pastor for four to six years or so, depending. They stepped out from ministry about a year in. And I got thrown into it, and which was which was great. Like I wanted to do youth ministry, but I didn't know it would be in that capacity that fast. I burnt myself out. I like, I, I still I had typed out a resignation letter, and it was on my um, desktop for like months, just waiting. And I probably had it on my computer for about three four months before I told anyone. Um, and I remember the, the thought going through my head as I was sharing with the first person I shared it with, I was like, they're gonna judge me hard. They're gonna be like, what do you have to complain about? Like, you're in a great church that loves you, people are supporting you, and like, I knew that, but I was wrestling with it, right? That was my fear, I was like, they're gonna shun me, basically. They're gonna love me, but they're gonna judge me, even with that, right? Um, but that's the opposite, it was like, I'm sorry you feel that way. Just know that, we know that, you're, it's, we know that it sucks, and it's not you. We know that you're doing what you can, but that's all you can do, right? We're not called to be perfect, we're called to be faithful, right? Oh, I'm gonna cry.
0: Here's the thing, for youth pastors like Eric, these types of gatherings don't feel optional or even supplementary, they feel necessary. It's the camaraderie and support that keeps him serving faithfully where he's called.
2: Yeah, through honestly, through working with guys like Sid and YWC. Uh, attending conferences in the community. The community is what brought me back, man, right? honestly. So like this stuff, like I want to come here because I know this what is what fills me. It, it like, it empties my tank a bit, but it fills it more.
0: Now, just to be clear, Eric arrived at this Youth pastor Summit months after he had decided he wouldn't resign. And he made that decision because of the team at the Youth Worker Community. Wow. Some of them you'll get to hear from in this episode. People like Sid, Lisette, Jeremy, Steve. And if it wasn't for their mission to support youth pastors and workers, I might not have had the privilege of meeting Eric face-to-face that day.
3: And there were other pastors like Eric with us in the room. Pastors in deep need of time together, eager to learn and discuss, worship and pray. And we could not wait to get into that space and to start our first full day.
0: Okay. Day two was a full one, a bit of a fire hose, if we're honest.
3: But in the best way. This was the plan. We wanted to talk through key youth audiences, the unique characteristics of Gen Z, Bible engagement, and we also really wanted to create space in the room for the spirit to tend to the hearts of the youth pastors and to pray and worship together.
0: But we felt it was important that as we moved through all of those important subjects, that it didn't feel theoretical That each exercise, piece of content, discussion, whatever it may be, they would all feel connected in the minds of youth pastors to real faces and names back at home.
3: Mm -hmm. So we did an exercise where we got everyone in the room to write down the names of three students, three leaders, and three parents, and to put those names right on the back wall. So for the entire summit, that back wall was covered in more than 300 sticky notes, reminding us all in every session who we were there for.
0: And then after that, Sid took us for the rest of the session, walking us through an incredibly helpful framework that Mariah touched on. And it was a framework that we referenced for the rest of the summit. He talked about six audiences that we need to consider in our youth ministries. Our students, volunteers, parents, staff, supervisors, and then the youth pastor themselves.
3: Here's Sid on the main audience, students.
5: When I'm thinking about students, I'm thinking about three types of students now. So I categorize them into three. So when I'm planning or thinking about my audiences and I'm thinking about students, there's three types of student groups that I'm processing. You might have more, that's fine. Three seem to be really important. And for me, it helps me be intentional in my ministry. I think number one about students in my community. So these are students within my local church context. I've been given a responsibility for the students that God has placed in the families that call our church home. Just wanna call that out. And any student that comes to my ministry and they call it home, I've been called to be a pastor of those individuals, and God has called me, he's allowed me to steward the children that he's placed in my care. So there's a real heavy responsibility that goes with that. But that's not the only people group. I think of those outside of my community. So I think about the place that I've been positioned geographically, and I go, okay, God, you've given me a pastoral responsibility for this community. One of the things you should think about is who are the students in your community? Who are the schools that are in the area that you find yourself in the city or town that you live in? Have you considered that God has uniquely called you into that space with a type of responsibility for those kids as well? And then the third group that I think about are students that are ready to lead in my community. Who are the kids who are actually, you know, they're, uh, they're committed to Jesus, they're understanding some of their gifts or abilities, and they're starting to move on point towards mission? And how do I equip, encourage, and support them and design opportunities for them to actually move forward in the mission that God's called them to? And I think we need to think about those three groups. Uh, here's one of the things. Just pause for a second. When you think about those three people group, who do you naturally lean to the most in your ministry? Take a second and maybe just circle the group that you naturally lean to the most when it comes to your ministry. And maybe ask the question, why is that? And there could be lots of reasons for that, by the way. I think when we think about our ministries, there's different seasons. So there were seasons in my ministry where I realized that more of our kids were pretty mature and I needed to call them to something more, so I had to design more missional opportunity for them. There were other times when I thought like a lot of my leadership kids had graduated and now I had a new group of kids coming in, we need to go a little bit deeper. And then there was seasons when I was like, oh man, the community has a great need, we need to move outward a little bit more. And I think it's okay for us to think in terms of seasons and to place emphasis that way as well. So maybe one of the questions that you should ask, especially coming out of COVID, is, is there one of these three student groups that you need to place a little bit more of an emphasis on now over the next like six to 10 months, and which group might that be? So you should consider that. Hey, let me just say something about student leadership for a second, if I could, just a quick aside. Um, we got to spend time um, with my friend Dave Ron. Dave Ron does a lot of um, research in the US, and they did a a book called Reimagining Evangelism. They were looking at youth ministries that were doing really good work in terms of peer-to-peer evangelism. And for them, that was the apex of student leadership. Does that make sense? Where they were seeing peer-to-peer evangelism. Here was the really unique aha that I took away from that. I talked about it. He said, youth ministries where their primary purpose when it comes to student leadership development is to run programs were actually quite ineffective when it came to -to peer-to-peer evangelism. Because instead of spending their time in building relationships and being intentional with their peers, they spent time working on program. And instead what they said is when we began to train and equip our students to be more intentional with relationships and engaging in mission, we saw that peer-to-peer evangelism go well. And I just thought, oh, that's so interesting because I think when I think about student leadership, I often think about task, I don't think about relationship and mission. And I started thinking, how can I start positioning my students so they can be more effective in that space?
3: Next up, we had Jeremy McDonald and Lisette Fraser from the youth worker community expanding on this idea that Gen Z is a hands-first movement-based generation.
0: Yeah. The premise was that every youth pastor needs to be a student of culture and a student of Christ and that the best youth pastors discover how Jesus and his gospel intersects with the longings of the students in their youth ministry. It was so helpful.
3: Yeah, so here's Jeremy McDonald starting with some statistics and Lisette following him with what these numbers actually mean for how we do youth ministry.
7: The thing about stats, uh, there's a couple of important things we need to know before we look at them. Number one, stats are an indication of what is, not necessarily what should be or what could be, right? They're a snapshot of what is current reality, but we can also recognize as people that like to change reality, change culture, change the story of our students, that there might be an opportunity to, to evaluate these things. Okay, that's the first thing. The second thing when we think about stats is that it is a a snapshot of a sample size. So the way that statistics and surveys work is you take a snapshot of a particular uh, population, in this case, Gen Z, this is gonna be Canadian and uh, probably a little bit of US, students mixed in. But if your context and your students are aspiring bullfighters from Southern Manitoba, then that's a pretty sliver, tiny little group of students that might have different ideas than the general sample of the world around them. Does that make sense? Okay, good. So with that being said, though, if you are in whatever community and you've got a unique group of students, it's probably also true that the population around them are likely more like the rest of the teenagers in North America because the students that you have in your community are watching the same YouTube channels. They're seeing the same people on social. And so the idea that your community would be dramatically different is probably less true these days than it's ever been. Although the unique small group of students that you get to minister to could be a little bit different than this sample size. Okay, so far so good. One last thing before we take a look at these stats. Uh, a number of years ago, Tim Keller was interviewed by Carrie Newhoff on the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, wonderful leadership podcast. And Tim Keller was so insightful to say the way that we communicate the gospel, the way that we talk about faith should shift and change as people and our culture shift and change. Not that the gospel message has to be different, but what he was referencing is that so often in our ministries, we've caught hold of the same program, the same style of message that's been used for decades and haven't yet been able to veer off the path a little bit to acknowledge the change in culture. He referenced the fact that we talk often about faith the same way that Billy Graham talked about it in in the Crusades. And the way that Billy Graham would present the gospel is oftentimes in our churches and our ministries, the way that we do. And he advocated for adjusting how we talk about things in order that we could actually be heard by a generation. So keep that in mind as we take a look at the screen for a few things on Gen Z or Z? either which one. All right, here's a snapshot. Two thirds of Gen Zers believe it is no longer acceptable for companies to be silent on social justice issues. What does that mean for us? Well, we're not a company, but we are an organization. And in the light of the fact that our students want big organizations to take stands, they're probably looking for us to articulate the same thing. Seven and ten want the companies they support to be actively engaged in conversations about social justice issues. Which social justice issues? You probably have to ask them, and they will probably tell you. All right, next up, 32 of Gen Zers have taken at least one of four actions. So one of the four, donating money, contacting an elected official, volunteering, or attending a rally to help address climate change in the last year. It doesn't matter what you think about climate change. It doesn't matter what your opinions are. If you're students and you've got students in your community that are dramatically fascinated by this new movement, then likely it's worth a conversation. And if part of your rhythm in your ministry is to burn styrofoam out back in the barrel and make it, you know, hey, I'm not here to cast judgment on you, but if the students in your community are casting judgment, it's just important to recognize what they're thinking. All right, next up. The vast majority of Gen Z supports Black Lives Matter and took at least one action related to the recent protests. 12% attended the protests and then lots posted social, uh, lots have made an effort to learn more about actions they can take to support racial justice and 22% say they've not taken any action related to the protests. Again, same thing. It doesn't matter what your experience and what your thoughts and what your values, what your politics are. When we look at a generation, they have a specific frame of reference. We should know that. And that's going to affect how we pastor and shepherd our students. And it should caution you in how you communicate about some of these things, because without realizing it, you could be adding stumbling blocks to your students as they are trying to find a movement that they can align themselves with that's going to make a difference in their own world and that they're going to be excited about. You can end up sidelining their ability to communicate or to, to jump in and be a part of the gospel movement. All right. Uh, snapshot here, 81% of Gen Zers think social media gives their generation more of a voice than previous generations and lots of them felt that peaceful protests and political demonstrations are necessary to create a significant change. I don't know about your upbringing, but I didn't know about elected officials growing up. That wasn't in my wheelhouse and it didn't seem like that was something that was a priority for my peers and yet here we are with students that know who got voted in and know who they need to talk to if they want to see this kind of change and so for lots of us, we've got to figure Figure out what that actually means as we think about our faith and the way that it's meant to actually transform the world around us. 62, last thing, 62% of Gen Zers, they agree they have the potential to impact the world. Isn't that fantastic? But it's also a little bit scary, and it's also a little bit important for us to steward and care the responsibility we have about helping guide them in that journey. So, this Gen Z crew, they care about the movements.
1: They're fun. What
7: does that mean for us, Lisa? Fill us in.
1: It's so fun. It's good to watch, right? And I think if you've been paying attention to the news at all, which all of us maybe try to avoid but can't avoid, right? The news is there all the time. There's something that has fascinated me the last few years as we've watched, right? And I would just say all we do is we see um, these movements, right? We see a lot of of movements. Uh, You don't have to like them. You don't have to agree with them. You can think whatever you would like to think about them, but between BLM, between Pride, between the women's movement, the climate movement, there's probably a whole lot of other movements. I would say this feels like the generation of the movement right? We are watching them engage this. And if you go look at the photos of the movements, and I think we have a few photos up there, um, the amount of movements that have young people at the front of those photos is pretty wild to watch. And I was interested, as I was paying attention to this and wondering what this meant for us as a church, I started to think about the new research that Fuller Youth Institute just released um, in the last little bit. And so they researched and spent a lot of time with a bunch of young people, and they would say there's three important questions every young person is asking: Who am I? Where do I belong? and how do I make a difference in the world? Who am I? Where do I belong? And how do I make a difference in the world? And I kind of remember hearing this and thinking, like, I, th- I think all of us are asking this question, these questions, right? Like we are all here. And they would just say, yeah, we all ask these questions, but for a young person, this feels like it's on high alert all the time. And what's interesting is as I think about these movements. What does a young person find? They immediately find identity in that movement, they immediately find belonging, and they immediately find a way to make a difference in the world. And so I just wonder, what does that mean for us as a church?
3: Lisette went on to challenge the group to consider some really important questions. This is her
1: again. Um, I realize this is really broad strokes, but my sense is we created a pretty consumer model, right? Okay, we did, right? And I would say we've created a pretty passive church, right? We want them to come. We want them to receive what we have to offer because we have the best thing to offer. And then we would like them to go from there. And so I'm curious what that means for today when we think of our culture, right? I'm curious what that means for us when we think about these questions that Fuller has proposed, right? I think we've done a not bad job of saying like, who am I? We would say your identity is in Christ, but in the midst of a cultural identity crisis, maybe we should say that a little louder. Um, Then we've maybe told them they belong, right? They get to be a part of something. But I'm curious if the purpose, like how do I make a difference in the world? If maybe that in a consumer passive church culture has actually been lost, but then we have a generation going to find it. Then I wonder... What will you do to identify needs in your community? Because to be fair, as Jer said, depending on your group, if you've got a bunch of kids really into the rodeo, what I may be talking about doesn't make the most sense, right? Um, I realize I'm like in the city, city. Um, But what does it look like? What does it mean for you to figure out what the needs in your community are Um, practically? How do you get to be a part of hope in your community? And what needs do your kids see in your community? Right? How do you learn what the needs of your community are? I don't know what you've tried. I'd say talk to city, town officials, talk to school principals talk to nonprofits that are around you, you might be surprised. Go read some stats. (laughs) You might actually have no idea what's really needed in your community. Um, So go find out. Find out what the actual needs in your community are because your kids will get behind real needs, right? They love that. They want to help make a difference in the world. So what difference can they make? And then what are some practical steps you can actually take?
0: After this session, we split off for lunch, and then we circled up again, this time around the theme of Bible engagement. And we wanted to start by scoping out some of the challenges and opportunities in that space. This is Sid.
5: When I think about Bible engagement and some of the trends or struggles that we're dealing with, I think um, we do definitely see a decrease in Bible reading. We definitely, when we think about trends, and you've already referenced it up here, we see an increase in skepticism and criticism about the book. It's homophobic, it's violent, etc., etc., I think it's really interesting with just some of the consumption habits when it comes to information that we see with our students. Isn't that true? So when we take a look about the idea like, you know, one of the things that we wrestle with when it comes to the students that we're working with is we say, hey, in one sense the Bible is really beautiful. Like a a young child has access to the truths of scripture in another sense, there's a lot of complexity to it that requires some really deep thoughtfulness and meditation and processing to really mine what is true, especially when it comes to contextualization. And right now, within our context, like we're not really developing the kind of mental focus and um, processing skills that allow us to stay with it for the kind of time that's necessary to mine what's coming from it. I think it would be fair for us to say that's true. Hey, the other thing I'd like to say to you as youth pastors, I think one of the things that's really difficult as well is, um, you know, uh, 20, 30 years ago, uh, you know, pre-internet, our students had access to either a limited amount of, of streams of, of, um, of information and it was fairly localized. Does that make sense? Like, generally speaking, the information you were processing was within this local context. But now, when we have access to so many streams of information from so many broad contexts, I think it, you know, it requires a much deeper journey of processing with students to actually lead them to truth, to process, understand, and commit to truth. So, Our job as youth pastors in one sense is harder because, you know, our basic answers that we use for so long, they don't really satisfy in the same way, but I also think in another sense, you guys, that maybe those answers never really satisfied as well as we thought they did anyways. Do you know what I mean? And maybe what's required is that we have to do a little bit deeper thinking, and maybe that's actually a gift of God's grace in this season that we as youth pastors are being forced to do a deeper type of thinking so that we can actually journey with our kids as they wrestle with the truths of scripture. So I think that's good. One of the real positive trends, you guys, that we've seen as we've talked with students is this desire to do Bible reading in the context of relationship and community. You guys, I get so excited about that. There's something about that I think that really um, reflects God's call to us as community. Let me just tell you one other thing that I'm really excited about when I think about Bible engagement. When I think about Bible engagement, I think about the opportunity that we have when we get really serious about our volunteer teams, right? You know we talked about that in terms of our six audiences? What does it look like when Bible engagement moves primarily from your place at the pulpit sharing truth with your students, which is really beautiful, and you should do it. It's necessary and needed. But what happens when your volunteers get excited about exploring truth in the scriptures as they personally study, and then those volunteer leaders pass those practices on to their students. Think about what that can look like. Think about this idea that right now students have access to scriptures through apps like UVersion, where the Bible can actually be their first experience with their phone in the mornings when they wake up. Can you imagine that? What if every one of your volunteers downloaded the UVersion Bible app And with their small group, they made a commitment to upload the verse of the day every morning at 7 a.m. And when every one of their students woke up and they grabbed their phone, that was their first experience they had with their platform. What could that begin to do with our students? Like, imagine those new realities that we have the opportunity to enter into. And I just think it's so beautiful.
0: So, Sid teed up the conversation, and then Jason and Hakeem Bradley were going to be the ones to discuss some best practices.
3: Now, we loved our time with Hakeem, and he definitely needs an introduction. Hakeem went from growing up in a Black identity cult in Philadelphia that was majorly against Jesus to becoming one of the researchers at The Bible Project.
0: Yeah, so if you don't know, The Bible Project is a non that produces Bible-based resources to make the biblical story more accessible to people.
3: Right. And so for Hakeem, his walk with Jesus started when he moved to Portland and was approached by a man named Phil, who worked for Young Life. Shut up, Phil. Young Life is all about meeting students where they're at, to build relationships with them and organically share the good news of Jesus.
0: So Phil and Hakeem went from kind of awkwardly meeting at a school sporting event to meeting regularly in a Dairy Queen to talk about the Bible jesus and what it meant to follow him and in Hakim's words his faith came alive there the next number of years looked like Hakim serving in various ways at different churches including as a janitor all the while falling more and more in love with the scriptures
3: yeah and one day Hakim found himself in front of tim Mackey, one of the founders of the bible project tim ended up offering him a job researching and studying the scriptures which is a pretty good gig
0: yeah it's not bad
3: and he's been doing that ever since
0: Hakeem's love for the Bible is contagious. That's probably the most standout thing about him. And we were so thankful to have his voice in the summit. Here are some of our favorite moments with him.
4: I've been thinking a lot about like a thought experiment. And the thought experiment is this. If you grew up in Sunday school, youth group, how many times have you had a Bible lesson? Like, let's say you're 25. And there's a lot of 25-year-olds in church in America and Canada, all over the world, who've been there from the beginning. So, let's say they're getting, someone help me with the math, like they're getting 40 out of 52 weeks a year, they're getting some Bible content. And you know, they start recalling stuff from age five. And so for 20 years, what's 20 times 40? Who does the math on that? 800. 800, so you've got 800 Bible lessons. And you can sit down with a 25 year old who's had that experience, 800 Bible lessons, and they still feel lost, like, and I was trying to think about why that is, like how is that possible? And I think one of the big challenges is, you hear verses and stories, David and Goliath, Jesus heals a leper. Some verse from Revelation, new heavens, new earth. But you don't know where to place it. Like, Not just chronology, but like, where do they fit in the story? And it's almost like, because somehow we've hoped that a cumulative effect of just Bible lessons that are principle-based, will eventually create a mental map for people, they should be able to get it. But because we haven't built a cohesive framework for people to understand the story of God and what the Bible is doing and is trying to do, all those 800 Bible lessons have the effect of like a dozen. And that's just my, this, this kind of exercise I'm, I'm thinking through. And, and I think why I've really appreciated what the Bible Project is doing is they have like the statement they keep going back to and it's this, tell me if I've got it right. It's one unified story that points to Jesus. One unified story that leads to Jesus. And what's powerful about that is such a simple idea is actually new information for a lot of people who have been in church for 20, 15, 10 years, whatever it might be. So I wanna I want just ask you to tell me a little bit about that idea. Like, what does that mean when they say, one unified story that leads to Jesus?
6: Yeah, so if I could give a metaphor, um, it's kinda of like, The Hebrew Bible, what we call the Old Testament in some spaces, has these narratives, poems, prose, all of these literary uh, things that compose the silhouette of an anticipated human. It's like, oh, well, Genesis 3, who's the seed of the woman that's gonna come and crush the serpent's head? Is it Cain, is it Abel? Clearly not, okay, so then is it Noah? No, okay, then it talks about, you get to the Abraham stories, you're like, oh, maybe it's Abraham. And then God is like, actually through you, I'm gonna bless the nations. It's through your, your people, your seed. Okay, so then who's the seed? It's this building upon that creates this mosaic of a silhouette, and then the New Testament authors come along and fill that silhouette and say, it's Jesus of Nazareth. Wow. And depending upon, I know this could get controversial, so sorry. But depending upon your church tradition, you might even engage with Second Temple literature, like 1st, 2nd Maccabees, what some might call the Apocrypha, some might call the Deuterocanon. Um, You get to see the different mindsets and thoughts within the different streams of Judaism that also contribute to the anticipation of one to come. Oh, is it Judas Maccabeus? It's like, no, not quite, but he is a type of Messiah, but he's not the Christ. Hmm. So then the New Testament comes, and then we go, oh, it's, it's him, it's the one from Nazareth. Hmm. And I think the whole point is to say, once we go through the Hebrew Bible, you can start to see the silhouette, but we want to show you how it's actually being filled with the person of Jesus. And you just have to be willing to go on a journey to discover that. Hmm. And I'd love to know, like for you, as um, when you were like a new follower of Jesus, and
4: you're just getting introduced to the Bible, what was the journey like for you? Because you can now look through it at the Bro. rear of your mirror with all this mm-hmm. information and context. Mm-hmm. What was your own journey? Because we're trying to ask the question, how do we better engage teenagers in our care in yeah. understanding scripture? When you look back, tell us a bit about your journey. And then what I'd love to do is look yeah. back again and kind of go, you know, what might have helped you? What, mm-hmm. what, you know, someone who wasn't exposed to this growing up, but what was your own journey with it?
6: Yeah, I found the Bible to be so confusing. Uh, really, it gets weird super fast. You yeah. Know? Like, yeah, that's for real. The first sentence of the Bible, you're like, okay, great. God created everything, the skies and in the, in the, in the earth. Great. And then it's like the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the water. And you're like, wait, what? Where did the waters come from? Then you get into this whole thing about a talking snake. Then you get into these whole things about the sons of God. You're like, what is going on? And you're only six chapters in. But what was helpful, I have two things. What was helpful was that I had the space with Phil and with my leadership um, in my youth ministry was the freedom to ask questions. Wow. And they weren't afraid of my questions. Uh, what was unhelpful is that there wasn't much training though in how to actually read these texts right. in ways that I think they are designed to be read. I wasn't taught about genre, so I'm, like, I'm reading Psalms the same way I would read Numbers, or I'm reading the Gospels the same way I read Revelation. So then I'm like, okay, there's a seven-headed dragon, like it's gonna come out the sea. I don't wanna be around with that. I don't even like horror movies, like that sounds... And, I just didn't have a framework to go, no, this is like metaphor. And I was talking with Jerry. Jerry, where you at last night? Yeah, me and Jerry were talking about this. I was like, yo, it, get, it just gets weird. But having the space to ask the questions was what made me fall more in love with the text. Wow. Because I think that's what they do. They create an invitation for you to wonder and to go, I need to sit with this longer. Hmm. I don't, like I'm not against uh, one year reading like plans or anything like that. It just never worked well for me because I felt like I had to rush through. It was like a competition of, well, if I get the revelation before everybody else, then I'm good, and then not have a clue about what the heck I just read, versus going, I'm gonna take one day at a time, and I'm gonna read a chapter. I'm only in Hebrews. Mm -hmm. I've been reading through. I've read after Hebrews, don't worry. But like, as far as in-depth study, for the last 10 years of my life, I've just been a couple chapters at a time, if that, and going, what are these authors trying to communicate? And how does that give wisdom for how to live as a disciple of Jesus?
4: I really want to underscore something you said that I felt feels so significant. Help me with how you phrased it. They made space for you to ask questions. And there's something else you said with that, like as if to say they made space and they weren't afraid of it. Yeah, they weren't afraid. And then you made a bit of a like, and it would have been even more helpful If they they taught me how to read it. Mm -hmm. uh, We're going to keep chatting for another like 17 minutes and five seconds. I don't want to miss that moment. I think we can get pretty far on those two ideas. Where do we create space where people can talk about it? Guys, I love preaching. I got like really set on fire for Jesus um, in an environment that was big on preaching. We'd go down these conferences and these preachers would do this stuff that was amazing. And, uh, and I, I preach a lot. I just don't think it's as effective as sometimes we think um, to help students understand scripture if it's not followed by a real space to talk about it. My youth pastor, Ben Woodman, who the guy I do Alpha with,
6: yeah.
4: he would take me out to this, uh, there was like a renewal happening in Langley, it's like an hour from here. When I was a teenager, I just fell in love with Jesus. And we'd drive out an hour from our house, or 45 minutes, we'd hear this amazing preacher, people would get saved. It was like, I loved it, amazing worship. The thing that made the biggest difference though was the 45 minute drive back. Because mm. I'd be sitting there wondering like, I'd be like, hey Ben, what was that weird thing he said? Like he said <laughs> that thing. And sometimes Ben would go, yeah, I don't know man. You know, and I was like, oh good, at least I'm not alone. And I think that's, that space is pretty powerful, you know, to talk about it. And so I think that we need to ask the question, where in our youth ministries are we creating that space? Like, where is it where an honest question can happen? And I'm a big, small group proponent, but I wonder if 12 guys from grade six in a room is, that's part of it. I wonder if there's safer places we need to make. So that's, that's one thought. And the second is the tools, like tools to understand it. There are real critiques that very like smart kids bring to the table. I just, one thing I love about the next generation, how just resourced they are. Yeah. Access to information, so smart. And some of it is misinformation, like it's preconceived ideas they're bringing to Scripture that are misinformed. Oh, yeah. And some of them are, are appropriately informed. I mean, it's not, a, it's not a simple book at times, you know? We've talked about that. And so whether it's slavery, the feeling that uh, the Bible's homophobic or contradicts itself, you know, these, these, these problems that seem to come up. And again, it's an unfair question because we don't have enough time to like address each one. But I just wonder if you have any wisdom about how you would approach those conversations. So a student is being invited to know the Bible and they bring this response that either they've heard or they found on their own. How do we respond to that?
6: Please don't shut it down. You will lose them very quickly because there are plenty of other philosophies and people that are willing to receive those questions and then give their insight to things. You don't need to have, we don't need to have all the answers, right? Um, But we do need to be a place for them to go, I need to ask this because I'm struggling and it doesn't make sense, I don't trust this. And you go, yeah, that's what this is about. Even the closest followers of Jesus, while he was walking the earth were asking questions hmm. and still go, dude, I don't get it. And he's like, how do, okay, well, we'll keep progressing. And even after that, they still go, I don't get this. Paul says, I'm perplexed. Like what makes it think that we're not gonna be perplexed, right, like, <laughs> the man saw Jesus himself. Like, <laughs> anyways, all that to say, when you, when you allow them to ask the questions, it builds the trust. Yeah, I would not be following Jesus right now had it not been for the spaces for me to ask. I still ask questions to this day. Wow, I'm like, hey, yo, Tim, bro, like this, all right, break this down, bro. What you think? And he shares his thoughts. And if I have a different take, it's, it's space to do that because that's what builds the rapport. It's the moment that you go, no, we're not going to talk about uh, homosexuality. We're not going to talk about any of that stuff. We're not going to talk about gender. We're not going to talk about identity. We're not going to talk about... Uh, whatever that they might be thinking about, it's like, why would I trust you with anything else? Hmm. If you're not willing to hear what's most pressing for me right now, I can't trust you with the other stuff. So, and it's okay for you to say, I don't know. Um, Say that again for the people at the back. Hey, for the people in the back. (laughs) it's, It's okay to say, I don't know, but please don't shut them down because that's how we learn. When you're kids, or if you have kids, when you were a kid, all you did was ask questions. And that's how we get formed. And Jesus is not afraid. I know this is a cliche, but he's really not afraid of the questions. How many people that we could read about in the scriptures was poking at him all day long? So should we pay these taxes? Or what's the deal with that? Who are you, whose authority are you teaching by? And sometimes he would answer it in a way. You're like, I don't know what he said, but um, he's not afraid of any of, he's seen all of this. Okay, last preaching moment. Sorry, we Take got a care. couple seconds. Um, there is nothing new under the sun. He saw everything that's going on today in his time. It just looked a little different. We all got issues, different magazines, whatever you want to call it, But he's seen all of this. The Roman Empire was rambunctious with so much of what we see today. He wasn't afraid of it then, and he's still not afraid of it now. He's literally king of the world. Hmm. And he says, don't cause these little ones to stumble.
0: The final part of day two was a talk from Daryl Johnson, followed by some time in worship and in prayer ministry.
3: Now, if you don't know Daryl, he's a preacher, pastor, author, and mentor. Currently, he's serving as a part of the teaching and pastoral team at the Way Church here in Vancouver, BC, and he's been preaching Jesus for over 50 years.
0: We were so excited about the opportunity to put an example like Daryl in front of these youth pastors, and he shared a message that I think everyone in the room felt like they needed to hear. Daryl preached from the popular words of Jesus recorded in Matthew chapter 11, verses 25 through 30. Mariah's going to read it to us now, and then we'll head right into a clip from that time with Daryl.
3: At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and those whom the Son chooses to reveal Him.
8: Jesus really likes being in communion with the Father. Jesus really likes his Father. I mean, that's a huge understatement. Jesus likes his Father. It's the secret of his identity and ministry. We cannot understand Jesus apart from his affection and passion for his Father. Jesus is praising his Father. He's delighting in his Father. He's trusting his Father. And he's doing so in a context that would call for anything but praise and delight and trust. The cities of Corazon, Bethsaida, and Capernaum are rejecting his preaching of the gospel of the kingdom. Some are saying he's in cahoots with the devil. Some think he's out of your mind. Some want to stone him. And yet, there he is, praising his father, delighting in his father, trusting his father. And then he turns to us and to his disciples. He says, Come, come to me. Come, join me in my praising. Join me in my praying. Join me in my delighting. Join me in trusting my father. Take my yoke upon you. This is the great blessing of discipleship and ministry. Jesus' yoke is his relationship with the father. And his burden? His burden is pleasing the Father. Jesus lives to please the Father. Nothing less and nothing more, as we hear him say in John's Gospel. I only do what I see the Father do. I only say what I hear the Father say. Jesus lives his whole career, if you can use the word career, of Jesus, for an audience of one. And he calls us to do the same, to live for an audience of one, Yes, the needs of broken humanity pull at Jesus, pull at his guts, his splankna, as the gospel writers call it. But the needs did not set the agenda of Jesus' life. Yes, he cares about what people around him are asking to do, right? But the requests of other people do not determine the way he lives his life. He does not live for the approval of the scribes and the Pharisees, the doctors of the law and masters of spirituality. He does not look for the blessing of the Sadducees and the chief priests, for those of the intelligentsia and the religious technicians. He feels no need to please Herod or Pilate. Whatever the powers that be, whatever the movers and shakers of culture are, he feels no burden to please them. He's not driven to please his disciples. He's not driven to please his brothers and sisters. He's not even driven to please his mother. Did I not say I needed to be about my father's business? He said that at the age of 12, and it shaped his whole career. Jesus is driven, if you can use the word driven, of him to please the father, period. Come to me all who are weary. Take my yoke upon you. Bear my burden, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. (laughs) Easy and light? Maybe for you, Jesus, I say. For us, this yoke is easy, this burden is light. Yes, Jesus says. I respond, yes. He says, yes. Why? And he says, because it was for this that you were created and are being redeemed. This is the essential blessing of discipleship and ministry. My yoke is easy. The Greek word is krestus, related to the word Christos, Christ. The yoke of krestos is krestus. Now, krestus means kind when referring to people, it means well fitting when referring to things. My yoke is crestus, it's well-fitting. It's well-fitting for me, he says, and it's well-fitting for you, because you have been created for the same identity and existence that I have. At the center of the universe is a relationship. Those of you who know me best knew I would get there, I try to work that into just about everything I preach. At the center of the universe is a relationship. A relationship between a father and a son. A relationship so pulsating with life that the relationship itself is a breathing, a spirit, a person, the Holy Spirit. And out of that relationship we were made and for that relationship we were made. God draws near to us. That would be wonderful enough, right? I could live the rest of my life on that. God draws near to us. But there's more. God draws near to us in such a way as to draw us near to himself. That too I could live on the rest of my life. That too is good enough that God draws us near to himself, but there's more. God draws near to us in such a way as to draw us near to himself within the circle of his knowing of himself. That is what Jesus means by his yoke. Jesus' yoke is that circle, the circle of the Trinity self-knowing. And wonder of wonders, Jesus calls us to join him in it. It's the essential blessing of discipleship and ministry. That's why Dallas Willard could say, it is being included in the eternal life of God that heals all wounds and allows us to stop demanding satisfaction. And then this line, what else matters of a personal nature. Once it is clear, you have been included in the life of the triune God. Take my yoke upon you. My yoke is easy. It fits well. It's the only yoke that fits the human species well. And my burden is light. Light? Pleasing God the Father is light? This is light. Well, maybe it is for you, Jesus, but for us? Yes, he says. It's infinitely lighter than trying to please your earthly mother or father. It's infinitely lighter than trying to please your parishioners or your board of directors. Really? Yes, he says. For what pleases the Father? What pleases the Father? What pleases the Father? What pleases the Father? What pleases the Father is throwing ourselves on his Son. What pleases the Father is throwing ourselves on the finished work of the Son. What pleases the Father is opening ourselves up to the Spirit and welcoming the Spirit's companionship and dwelling. Take my yoke upon you. You get so weary because you're wearing the wrong yokes. You're overburdened because you're bearing the wrong burdens. Switch yokes, switch burdens. Wear my yoke, wear my burden, and you'll find rest for your souls.
3: As you can imagine, the ministry in the room after Daryl finished preaching was powerful.
0: Yeah, it's honestly hard to describe. Mm -hmm. It was more than good feelings. Uh, There was real impact, and it really felt like God was with us, and everyone in the room knew it.
3: For quite a few youth pastors that we talked with, it was actually the highlight of the three days together.
0: The next day, I was able to catch up with Nathan, a youth pastor at Central Heights Church in Abbotsford, B.C. Here's what he had to say about this time together.
9: Even on the drive out uh, to this conference, just like I would say it's been a season for me of wrestling with calling. Some things becoming more concrete, some things becoming a little bit more... Uh, fearful, uh, uh, coming in with more insecurity, like the being at a conference, the comparison game that's happening. So wrestling with both like excitement about calling and fear about calling at the same time. And there's just an image that was given of uh, standing at the burning bush with Moses. Uh, and then what happened in the, Im- in the image is as we think about Pentecost and the indwelling of the spirit, just recognizing that that burning bush of the life, the dangerous life giving presence of God actually residing within me. Uh, the, the language that was given, just like the flame of impossibility that just like dwells within my soul. Uh, and that being the sense of the source, I should say, of calling, of commissioning, and even then being the case of invitation where, uh, through me, uh, there gets to be opportunity to, have, to allow other people to have burning bush types of experiences, uh, that other people can have those types of take off your sandals, like holy encounters with the living God. Uh, So man, just like an affirmation of like the work of God in my life that is just propelling me into the future. I mean, the complexity of the moment that we're in hasn't changed, but there's just a different type of uh, steadiness, anchoring, uh, and even, I mean, this is a word that's coming to mind right now, a different type of compassion out of coming, like, here's the identity that I've been given that I can just like operate in the love and the goodness and the mercy of Jesus.
3: Here's Lisette, who we heard
1: from earlier, describing what she felt in the room during that time. I just think so many pastors carry so many heavy things um, and they can't share that. They risk their jobs sometimes when they share that, right? If they have to be honest about where they are, uh, the things they're struggling with, where their hurt sits, where all that, um, that can really feel like you can't do that as a leader, right? And, And maybe you can, but so often you feel like you can't and there's nowhere to do it. So to have this moment where it was a room where everyone realized they were just safe and it was okay. You know, they could confess, they could cry, they could receive, um, and I think they could be made well. And it was just beautiful.
0: I asked Steve Zacharias from the youth worker community to share what he found most impactful from that ministry
10: time closing off the Tuesday. This final clip is Steve. One of the significant things that I saw in the room as that happened is I, I, I believe that pastors began to find their own tears. You know, for those of us who have worked in pastoral ministry for years, I think we have carried the weight of so many other people and we shed tears for others. Um, And I just think about the significance of being able to pause for a moment and be able to release the tears that we have of our own. And there's something detoxifying. And I think of the exhaustion that I've heard from people and it's like man i just wonder if you need to find your own tears of futility and and there was this sense of release in that moment when you feel like you're in a room of people who truly understand there's a security and a safety to be able to just finally release that and was that not just a healing moment a healing moment where for a moment we didn't feel the pressure to have to be strong for everyone else but we could just rest in the in the hands of the father and let him be everything for us, and we didn't have to be everything for everyone else.
3: We are so thankful for what the Lord did in our midst, how He met with, spoke to, and encouraged these youth pastors. It almost felt like it could have all ended right there, and it would have been worth the time.
0: But we still had day three ahead of us, three breakouts, discussing topics like working with volunteers, emerging gender identities, and partnering with parents.
3: Two more group sessions, one on spiritual formation with Jaron Oda from Bridgetown Church, and a closing sermon from Jason, commissioning us to leave our final moments together with courage from the Spirit.
0: And of course, all throughout it, lots of time to connect, collaborate, and worship with one another. But more on all of that in our next episode. We're committed at CCLN to coming alongside pastors in all parts of their ministry journey. To see more pastors become faithful, abiding, deep leaders in Jesus' church. And it was our joy to do this specifically with youth pastors from across Canada. Now, there are quite a few thank yous in order. We want to thank the team at Youth Worker Community, Sid, Lissette, Jeremy, and Steve. Your work to support youth workers at this gathering and beyond is changing the game for the Canadian church today and well into the future. We want to say thank you to Daryl Johnson and Hakeem Bradley for letting us share what Jesus has taught you in this way, and to youth pastors like Eric and Nathan for serving the next generation faithfully and letting us put a microphone in front of you. And from our team here at CCLN, I want to thank Will Lee for your work producing this episode so hundreds of other pastors could benefit from what was shared at this event. Now, these episodes and all of the content we share from CCLN is only made possible because of generous individuals and churches who have decided to partner with us financially. If you want to join that group of regular givers, we've made that simple for you to do. Just head to CCLN.ca slash give to find out more about what that could look like. And lastly, if you're a youth pastor in Canada, we would love to connect with you specifically to hear your story, to encourage you, to pray with you. You can reach out to me directly at Jaden at ccln.ca or to my teammate Anne at Ann at ccln.ca or just shoot us a DM on Instagram. We want to serve you however we can. Okay, that's it from us. Thanks for joining us for this recap on the Canadian Church Leaders Podcast. We hope you'll tune in again for part two coming out in a couple of weeks. Bye for now.